You're listening to Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast, dedicated to exploring the full potential of human physiology and mind with focus on ancient and modern techniques of self-development. Spend some time with Dr. Nader, who is leading the way in the science of consciousness, and begin your journey to better understanding the relationship of mind and body, consciousness, and physiology right now. In this episode, Bob Roth, the CEO of the David Lynch Foundation, interviews Dr. Tony Nader and gets to the bottom of the question we're all asking, who are you? I very, feel very fortunate and very honored to be sitting with you. And I have been working with the media for over 40 years, and so when I knew I was going to have this opportunity to sit with you, I called up some reporter friends from the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal and ABC News, and I said, if you had a chance to ask a question of Dr. Nader, what would you ask? So that's what we're going to hear from today. I have some of my own, but also I have questions from them. So the first question is, people want to know who are you? Would you mind talking a little bit about yourself, about where you were born, where you went to school? I want to lead up to how you ended up doing what you're doing today. So we're going to sort of look at that track, okay? It's very interesting because one of the issues we have today in the world is the identification of who we are. <laughs> and when you ask people who I am, they'll give you a statement or an answer with a name, a nationality, maybe a belief system, maybe their education, maybe their profession. And one thing I have learned that is going to be very important in all concepts of potential solutions for our world is to know who we really are. This question, therefore, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to get an answer. <laughs> I, I'll give you the I'll give you the, the outer aspect <laughs> yeah. of it, but the big it's, picture. It's yeah. such a very important question for us to realize that we really are the transcendental pure being within the self. All great traditions in the world have guided us towards that. Know thyself, know the kingdom of heaven which is within you. And even science pointing out to what are things, what are objects, what are people ultimately, and find that we are one unified field, unbounded ocean of pure being within. I take this opportunity from the beginning <laughs> to say that I am the self, the same self as you are, the same self as every Christian, Muslim, Jew, Hindu is, and the same self as the self of every object, every planet, and every galaxy, which is ultimately understood more and more by modern science as being a unified field of natural law that manifests itself into all kinds of other objects. So how did you come to know that? I have known myself and started to know myself like everyone else being born in a specific situation and condition. In my case it was in a pious Catholic family, uh, religious, and I was sent to a French school which is a Jesuit school where there was a lot of emphasis on divinity and God and religion and also studying the Torah, the ancient testament or the New Testament which is the modern Bible and Jesus Christ and all the values that it gives. I grew in a condition also which is very special. As soon as I finished my schooling, there was a big war that... Uh, Where, what country? In Lebanon, oh, Lebanon. That was, you know, exploded, a civil war between Christians and Muslims. And also it had many motivations which were economic, uh, racial, um, and all kinds of connected values that had really a great impact on society. 
After I did my medical schools, I did some psychiatry and internal medicine. And then I learned transcendental meditation during this period. Just curious. So you're studying religion, and now you went to medical school. What was it in you that said, okay, I have that understanding, now I want to understand the body? Yeah, religion was part of what I was given to be the supreme knowledge, the supreme knowledge given by the divine, which is supreme in terms of human behavior, in terms of ability to do things properly in accordance with what one called the laws that are the laws of life. So one wants to do things right. And then what you see is that there are different concepts of what is right, different values, different cultures. And when you are born in some place, you believe that's the one and the only one. And then you start to compare and see why God did this and doesn't do that. So one of my motivations is to understand the human being, ultimately. What makes us believe what we believe? What makes us understand things in one way, whereas others understand things in another way? and actually see that people are willing to die and kill for their beliefs, for their God, which seems as if there are many gods, although they believe in one God, but their God is the one that is right and your God is the one that is wrong. And, and even with the basis of great ideals and beautiful intentions, you end up on the active level with huge conflicts and problems. So I was interested to see what is going on in this machine, oh, which is body. our human body and human brain, that makes us do what we do, desire what we desire, and achieve what we achieve. So that's why you moved into psychiatry, to sort of more of an understanding. Yes, the human body was a basis for understanding and the human brain, so I studied some psychiatry. I didn't get too much into it because it was mostly related to great pathological aspects of the human brain and nervous system and mind. And I wanted to understand actually the basics of the human physiology first. What year was that? Well, that was in 1975 or so. Okay. So, <laughs> 1975, there wasn't that much research on transcendental meditation. You're a, a medical student. What? Tell me the story of how you learned transcendental meditation and why you learned it. Well, I was interested, as we said, in the full potential of a human being. How do we develop our human potential? If I understand something from a perspective, you understand it from another perspective, the third person from even yet another one. Is there a commonality of what we can call absolute truth or absolute knowledge that would be valid for everybody? And therefore, when you look at the religions, you actually can find really great common denominator. But somehow the scriptures are interpreted with certain focus on certain things that play into oftentimes economic, political factors, cultural factors, and the protection of small societies. And then as if these become excuses to fight with the other, whereas the essence of life is very different. So while at the same time I wanted to understand the human brain and physiology, I thought, what about the human mind and the relationship between mind and physiology? And I got lucky that somebody told me there is this very simple technique that one can learn and that actually opens the human potential and the awareness of the mind. So while my research was to understand totally what a human being is and why a human being behaves the way she or he behaves, I wanted to see not only the physical apparatus, which is the brain and the nervous system, but also the mind. And in case the mind was something different, 
Yeah. Uh, then how does it relate to the body? If someone asked you, who knew nothing about meditation, transcendental meditation, how would you explain what transcendental meditation? Your grandmother or you know just someone? How would you explain it to them? Because lots of times people say, "Oh, meditation, transcendental." Yeah, it's a big word. Yeah. <laughs> Our mind thinks thoughts that we know, and the thoughts help us to go into action. Action brings to us achievements, and achievements allow us to be fulfilled. Everyone in life wants more achievement and more fulfillment. That is the nature of life, to grow into greater happiness, greater love, greater well-being. Ultimately, all starts in the mind. You think something and then you, you do it. You perceive something in a certain way, then you act in a different way. So that mind, where is it? What is it? How can we explore it? So transcendental meditation is a very simple practice that allows the mind to explore all of its various levels. There is a surface level of the mind, which is the moment we are aware of a thought. And there is a deeper level of the mind, which is where the thought is coming from. So you can say you're running, you can run. If you can run, you can walk. If you can walk, you can sit still and stand still. And the mind is like that. There are different levels of the mind. Imagine it's an ocean. The mind is like an ocean. And on the surface are the waves. And the waves are the thoughts. And you realize, I have a thought when you see the wave in the ocean. The origin of the thought is deep inside the mind. And that origin is within the self. This is where you go to your real self. One has the idea that myself is this or that or the other, and these are thoughts about the self. But the true self is where all thoughts come from, all intelligence come from, all creativity comes from. So transcendental meditation allows the mind to settle down in that ocean and reach its inner self. The term to transcend means to go beyond. So what transcendental meditation does is allow the mind to settle down in a mechanical, systematic, simple way, reach the finest level of thought, and actually go beyond that to the origin of thought or the origin of everything and anything. Now that might be the place where it's difficult to understand what does it mean, that place. But going beyond means transcending. Transcending is being able to be awake, yet in a non-directed way, on nothing. Usually we are awake always, we say, I'm awake and I have a thought and I have a feeling, I have an image in my mind. We don't know that it is possible to be awake without any image, any thought, and any other thing other than wakefulness itself. So you're awake to wakefulness, you are just purely awake. That's what we call pure consciousness. What you just described is powerful, profound, abstract. Do you have to believe to practice transcendental meditation? What is the benefit from that? Could you just comment a little bit on those things? Yeah, when we say what is transcendental meditation, we describe what happens, what the practice is. But then what does transcendental meditation do to you? What it does to you is a natural outcome of the process of allowing the mind to settle down and going to that state of pure consciousness. What happens is the mind settles down so deeply, and since the mind and the body are intimately related, when the mind settles down, and this hundreds of scientific experiments have shown, the body also settles down. The settling down of the body means rest, and it's very deep rest. 
even deeper than deep sleep. Mm. Rest is the basis of the removal of tiredness, uh, the removal of stress and fatigue. That is what we do when we go to sleep. If you're running all the day and you're tired and all of that, you don't try to pull the fatigue out of your muscles. <laughs> you just rest. Right. And the body takes care of bringing you back to the normal state. The body has that natural tendency to bring you back to the state of most normal functioning possible. However, with time, stresses get accumulated, which is a deep kinds of fatigue. You know, you have a bad experience in your life, a bad memory. This gets actually imprinted physiologically in your body, as if the rest of sleep doesn't remove it because it's not deep and profound enough. So when you have this deep rest during transcendental meditation and the body gains that very deep rest, spontaneously fatigue is removed. And when fatigue is removed, then normality comes back to the body. So then when the mind settles down, as you said, the body gets deep rest. What is the value of that? Rest is a natural requirement by the body to adjust itself and put itself back in normality. That is why we sleep. That is why we dream. Because there are phenomena, chemicals, things that happen in our brain, in our nervous system, in our physiology that accumulate uh, certain balance of chemicals and they require to be balanced again. And the deep sleep or the rest is what adjusts that. We can say that the body has a normal ability to get rid of tiredness and that it does when it is rested. That's what we experience every day. Remember the day when you wake up and you have had a good night's sleep. You are more alert, your body feels better, you work better, and you have more resistance to disease. And the research that has been done on transcendental meditation shows that it gives such a deep rest that the body has improvements in all areas. People who have asthma, who have... Uh, problems of hypertension, who have all kinds of diseases, they see, within short periods of time, the effects of this deep rest that's gained in transcendental meditation. So this profound rest is important for all aspects of life, besides the fact that, of course, TM opens the awareness to greater intelligence and creativity and allows the individual to make better choices in their life which is also very important in having a more integrated functioning and less mistakes, which means less problems, be it in the area of health or at work or in different areas of life. So you learned Transcendental Meditation in 1975 because you wanted to understand or experience the full potential of the mind. Then what happened? I faced a situation of a terrible war a civil war, so that what I had learned to be different cultures, different values, suddenly they were clashing because of different interpretations and different radicalizations and extremism and also mixed with all kinds of political, economic, socio-economic, demographic reasons which I had to face and understand and discuss with my friends. But I went through the medical school, did some psychiatry and internal medicine, and then this is when I thought I have to do something also about the mind to offer to the people. Not that just chemicals are what makes people better, which means in psychiatry we use chemistry as the main uh, approach to helping the human mind to be more balanced and settled. 
And for good reason, because there are chemicals that are changing in the human brain, which translates into different moods, different behaviors, different perceptions. And so when there is something wrong in the brain, you can see the effects on the experience of reality or the feelings and all that we call human mind and human psychology. So I was interested to see if there was an approach that is not only on the physical level, on the chemical level. And since I had learned transcendental meditation and found the profound benefits in it, I thought, why can't I, since I am in the profession and the vocation of removing disease, which is what doctors are about, and helping people, why don't I investigate and learn more about this program by becoming myself a teacher? Hmm. So I went to Switzerland in 1980-81, and I learned with Maharshi, under his guidance, how to become a teacher of Transcendental Meditation and be able to give this knowledge to others. After that, I came back to Lebanon, and I continued a little bit of psychiatry. What was that experience like, becoming a teacher? It was really very profound, because I knew that we can have a very holistic way to approach problems without side effects, actually huge side benefits. So if you are approaching, for example, a problem of stress or a problem of depression or anxiety, and you are focusing on that one aspect of the individual, sometimes in modern medicine, and most of the times, unfortunately, we have lots of side effects. So the chemicals that target a specific balance or imbalance in the human nervous system, they have very good effects, but they could also have negative effects, and the individual have to suffer from those. What I found in Transcendental Meditation is that you can address a problem, and instead of having side effects, you have all kinds of side benefits. The person will have a better immune system, Mm. you'll have a better health, more enjoyment of life, more fullness and wholeness in their experience of who they are, how they relate to others, and even their influence on their environment is extremely positive. So while you're addressing a specific problem, you are actually creating a large number of benefits which are beyond the resolution simply of the specific problem. So So before we go back, was that your first, 1978, was that your first introduction to Maharishi? I met Marshi before, briefly. It was a conference in Switzerland also, in Ayurveda, and he was giving that conference in the late 70s. And I traveled just to see how it's going. I met him very briefly there, and then I came back to my medical school. And uh, actually, as I was finishing my internship, I took time off and went to really spend several months between Germany and Switzerland And ultimately, actually, I was lucky that for different reasons, uh, I was with Maharshi in Switzerland, and I was taught to become a teacher with another young man who was from Iran. And for different visa reasons, we ended up being there. And Maharshi was personally checking over and looking (laughs) over our training. And uh, that was when this relation started to be a little more personal than just Um, you know, Marshi as a teacher. And Marshi has said that he's not someone who is asking people to be devoted to him. 
that the practice of transcendental meditation is a very personal thing. It's a do-it-yourself technique. It doesn't depend on the teacher. It doesn't depend on a relation with the teacher. You learn it, you go at home, you do it morning and evening, and you don't depend on belief or anything. You just follow your religion, follow your practice, your diet, whatever you like in your life, and just improve yourself with this technique, which is really, on one level, a great mental hygiene. You know, people wake up, they take a shower, they feel better, the body's cleaner. Why not clean up a little bit the mind? <laughs> you know, take a shower of the mind. <laughs> and on that level, it's really as simple as that. Even Marshi used to call it, because people would say, is it something that about, you know, we have to believe in something, go to God and, and like that. And he says, going to God is beautiful. And let's look at transcendental meditation as somebody who wants to invite God to their home. And transcendental meditation is cleaning the home uh -huh. so that when you invite God to your home, he comes to a clean home. <laughs> so that is really a mental hygiene, a cleaning up of the mind. And obviously when the mind expands and is clean, then the vision of reality expands on a practical level, not on the level of forcing a certain belief or forcing a certain way of approaching, uh, you know, uh, God or not, which is beautifully done in many, many religions. Some of them, you know, go into some extremes here and there in the interpretation. But ultimately, whatever the interpretation is, if the person is more clear, more clean, more awake in their awareness, then their interpretation is going to be much more profound and much more in tune with the true essence and depths and, uh, of the religion, whatever the religion is. And then one can find the unity that is permeating actually the message of all the leaders and the prophets and the teachers of all religions uh, you know, be it from the East or the West, these wise people or these prophets or these messengers of God, they must have spoken something that is universally good and helpful. But unfortunately, if the mind is stressed and the action is based on tiredness and fatigue and fear, then the understanding is limited and individuals end up fighting each other for no good reason. Thank you. 1980. <laughs> <laughs> when I came back, I, I still had in mind that I wanted to pursue more understanding also of the human physiology because transcendental meditation, as I got into it, I understand the background of it, which is what is called Veda and Vedic literature and the ancient knowledge and where it comes from and what it is tradition, because I was really poking into it like a scientist would search what is its origin, how did it come to be like this, and we know it is thousands of years old, it comes through a very long tradition of teachers, and it's not an invention of Maharshi, and Maharshi constantly referred to his own teacher, who was the Shankaracharya in India, and his own teacher refers to the tradition as being the source of this knowledge. So it's a very ancient tradition that has come to us. And so I looked into all of these aspects that brought this tradition into being. And at the same time, I wanted to be able to see 
what is it in the nervous system that is happening during this program and how much we can understand, continue to understand the human physiology and the nervous system. So I applied to do a research and PhD in uh, two different universities where I have been uh, lucky to be accepted and I selected to be in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology at MIT uh, to work in a lab which was working on uh, neuroendocrinology which is the chemistry of the brain and how the nervous system and the endocrine system interact with each other and ultimately it became psychoneuroendocrinoimmunology <laughs> which connected actually the thoughts, the mind mm -hmm to the brain functioning and the brain functioning to the hormones and the hormones to the immune system so that we have an axis, we have a relationship between these that is built and understood scientifically. And so I was lucky and fortunate to come to the United States and spend seven, eight years in Boston area at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and was a year later accepted at Harvard Medical School and the Mass General Hospital as a clinical and research fellow in neurology, where I was doing both neurology and at the same time research and PhD in uh, what was brain and cognitive sciences at MIT. So I completed my research, which was very physiological, very specifically related to brain and chemistry and nervous system and had practically at its surface value nothing to do with meditation and, and transcending and Veda and the Vedic literature and at the same time experienced the clinical side and did clinical research at Mass General Hospital and attended to patients also to, to some extent there. And there, after all, I Were you meditating regularly? Yes, I was doing my... I took advanced techniques and uh -huh. I practiced uh, every day, morning and evening, very regularly. And at the same time, I participated in uh, what Marshi was bringing out as Ayurveda, which is a system of health from the ancient Vedic tradition which uses natural medical procedures and even herbs and plants and food to cure and balance disease. And I did actually research on the antioxidant effects and the powerful curing effects of some of these when I was there. Going back to 1975, you, you were not satisfied with just the chemical approach to the brain. Is that just something that came up from within yourself and obviously it, it continued on? You were looking for outside-the-box solutions. Would you talk a little bit about your own passion for that? Yeah, it was not really to undermine or reject the chemical approach, but it was to have a full approach. Because we have a mind, we have a body. We have to attend to the body from the body's level, you know, you have to eat properly, you have to have balanced diet. If some minerals or chemicals are missing in your diet, proteins or, you know, this or the other, some vitamins, then you get also imbalances in the physiology. So we have to attend to the body as such, but we cannot ignore also the mind because the mind is very powerful. We know now huge numbers of psychophysiological diseases that are caused by perception, how you perceive things, how you see things. You know, two people might be walking in the street and they see a rope and it's a little bit dark. <laughs> one sees the rope, the other one thinks it's a snake. The other one who thinks it's a snake gets fear and palpitation if they have weak heart or uh, weak physiology in their uh, cardiovascular system. They can get a heart attack, they can die. 
Over it, nothing. Over nothing. But here are two people walking in the street. One is enjoying the rope. Maybe he can get use of it. <laughs> yeah. He thinks, wow, great. And the other guy dies from it. Yeah. So the objective level of reality can be the same. The way our brain interprets it or our mind interprets it can lead to a completely different outcomes. And therefore, it's an extreme example, but every day yeah. we are living our overreacting, life like overreacting we're overreacting to we don't have to. the way we interpret things how they happen some friend comes to you he says something you have suspicion you have fear you are tired then you react in a different way or you way. had something that happened to you five years ago in a relationship exactly. or in, in in combat and you hear a loud noise and you so you, I, yeah absolutely like we see in those who come from war and right. i know you are very much involved in helping patient with traumatic stress, you know, post-traumatic. Now, at this point, during this time, were, were you establishing more of a closer relationship with Maharishi? Were some of these ideas that you are now talking about, are, are these original ideas? Did they come from your time with Maharishi? Consciousness, self. I'm just curious now, you finished school, where are we? Maharishi comes from this Vedic tradition, ancient Vedic tradition. and he Which has, is Hinduism or not Hinduism? Which is absolutely not Hinduism. Hinduism actually is an offshoot and, and we can say an interpretation of uh, Veda. Veda means knowledge. It's a science. People try to put it in the garb of religion and belief, but actually it's a science of life. It's a, an understanding of how things are and have been set up from the most profound perspective, and that is the perspective of consciousness. Now, throughout time, this Veda has been, like everything else, interpreted in many different ways. And there are many different Hindu religious beliefs which are very close to the Veda. Some of them are an interpretation. And many of them have taken one aspect of the Veda and others some other aspects of the Veda and assumed that this is the reality and total Veda, and they became staunch believers and supporters of that one aspect. And sometimes in these aspects, there can be even contradictions. And so there is a huge philosophical clash between even within the interpretation of what Veda Everywhere is. in the world. It's the same. You can interpret this <laughs> this way, that way, and then you fight for what you believe in. But it's natural dynamics of growth and opening the awareness to different possibilities. Marshi brought of this, all of this together on a platform of science. If you say for a flower to grow and for a plant to blossom, you need the air, you need the water, you need the sunshine. And together they allow the plant to become beautiful and grow in a healthy way. But if you want to look at one or the other, you can find them in contradiction with the other. You can find that the air dries and the water wets. So the air is in contradiction with the water and they should fight each other. You can say the sun is heating and drying, but it is the togetherness of these factors that allow the plant to grow. So sometimes opposite values are necessary for a proper development and evolution. You know, same thing on the level of creation and destruction and all of that. In order to evolve, you have to finish from one state and move to another state. You can call the finishing from one situation and going into the other a destructive process or a creative process. You destroy the old, you create the new. So 
how destruction and creation balance each other is where proper evolution and direction of evolution goes. And therefore, we have to be able to see things in their holistic perspective, in their total perspective, such as the wind, the water, the sunshine, the wetness, the dryness, the heat, coming together in a balanced way and supporting each other for growth, or seeing them as separate factors that fight each other and create a conflict. So how does that tie into Vedic knowledge or what you were studying with Maharishi? Even though there can be different perspectives within Veda, it's actually a holistic perspective when seen together. So, so it has to be all together. Exactly. When it's all together, it structures the steps of evolution and progress. That's why differences in society should not be seen as the problem. It's not the differences that are the problem. The differences are beautiful aspect of the glory of creation that allows the garden of life to be made out of many colors and many shapes and makes it so beautiful for everyone to enjoy. The problem is not those differences. The problem is where our human attention goes. Does it go into the differences and make the differences a point of disagreement and conflict? Or does it go to the unity of life? which is what we call consciousness and pure being and pure existence that is like the sap that creates the flower and the stem and the leaf from the tree and the branches of the tree. So all these different values come from one value, which is the sap in the flower or the sap in the tree. So the differences on the outside are unified by the value of the sap. Life is like that. We all are a product of natural law, of a unified field within natural law, and we can talk about this if you like. And that is what we truly are. So the perception of who we are is very important in social cohesion and balance in society, not the elimination of outside differences. So if our attention is on the factors that unify us, then we are in a unified life and in a balanced, harmonious society can be created. If the attention is on the divisive, different values, then this is where the conflicts can arise. As a human society, we are no more living in the jungle. Uh, where there are, you know, immediate reactions that are necessary, even though some of the things we see sometimes is jungle-like. Yeah. And there, what can you do? People are going to behave, and they're going to be angry, and they're going to lash on and their anger. This is also a natural process. But if we want a long-term solution to the behavior of the individual, we have to know how to culture the full potential of the individual, open their awareness and create their balance in the physiology and mind. That is for the individual. Now, we perceive society as being a number of different individuals that think differently from each other and each has their own opinion. But ultimately, society is also a wholeness that is motivated by each other's perspective, by the news, by the media, by how it is presented to you, by what you hear. And I would liken society this way to a nervous system. One nervous system is made out of many neurons, millions of them, 
hundreds of millions of them. And each neuron is a cell with its integrity, its reactions, its response to things, it analyzes things, and it has its own presence in the nervous system. It is the collectiveness of these neurons that creates what we call the individual human brain and individual human mind and thinking and behavior and decision-making. Society is also like this. It doesn't look it, but we are really all like neurons within the collectiveness of society. And the collective behavior of a group depends on individual actions, reactions, stress level of the individual, and also the perception of relationship and how this happens and interacts with it. So when you have a collective, a group, then you can say the group is behaving in accordance with the quality of the individuals within that group. If you can relax the individual, can you relax, between quotation marks, the group? Yes, you can. How, how do you do it? You relax the individuals. Mm -hmm. Relax means go back to the self, get a wiser perception. It's important because some people say <laughs> meditation could be well, the opiate of the masses, what well, just makes you relaxed and you don't care and you don't do anything. How would you respond to that? Yeah, exactly. Maybe that was a term which has to be qualified and yeah. it's good you ask because relax doesn't mean retire from activity. It means go back to the self and established in the self, then you can perform action which is more creative, more powerful, and more purposeful. When we say rest and sleep, you can say, I don't want to rest because it's a lethargy and all of that. But if you don't rest, you're not going to behave properly, you're not going to be active. So dynamism, creativity, intelligence, and power resides in greater rest within. Right. You know, we can take the example, if you want to shoot the arrow, you pull it back. And when you pull it back on the bow, then it really hits the target, goes very strong. If you want to build a building that goes up very high, you have to start digging in the ground to create foundations that are very deep. If you want the wave in the ocean to be huge and powerful and gives beautiful surfs, then you need a powerful, strong, deep ocean. So it is the hidden depths of things that gives the outer power in it. And it's the same for us human beings. How do we relax the collective then? Oh, how we bring, if you like not to use the term relax. No, it's okay, it has, you explained it, it's okay. How do you bring that collective consciousness, collective awareness, collective existence, to a state of deeper energy and deeper power so they can not only think properly in the right direction, but also have greater power in their action and indomitable strengths that can prevent any enemy from even being able to penetrate that entity. You do it through the individuals. There is no other way. It is not through teaching on the surface level. It's not through lecturing. It's not through... Uh, values that are on the intellectual surface level. It is on the level of being. Transcendental meditation is not a contemplation process where you start to think about things and analyze things on an intellectual level. It's a very simple technique that allows the mind to rest and rest and rest. And this has been proven scientifically over and over again. It's a direct experience of the self which is a field of infinite silence. That is what we call the depths of the ocean. The depths of the ocean of the mind 
allow the mind to expand in its depths, go back to itself. And that is where the infinite power is. That is also where infinite quietness and silence is and infinite internal peace. So peace here is the basis of dynamism. It is not peace in terms of lethargy. It's yeah. peace and as the source of power in the same way as the ocean creates these huge waves, the deeper it is. You know, in a small pond, you can create only ripples. So if your mind is like a small pond, it's very shallow pond, then you get only very shallow thinking. If your mind is like an ocean, then you can have huge waves of potential activity and perception. And therefore, a new understanding gives you a new level of perception of reality. So one has to be prepared if one wants profound and complete solutions to look at reality in its broadest possible way. That's a really good example. And yeah, the yeah. broadest possible way that one can look at is simply not only, you know, looking at what traditions have said or the Veda has said or the teachers have said, because all of these have been put to question because they are sometimes contradictory. We don't know what it is. But let's look into science. You look into science. For us now sitting, even our intellect tells us that everything is object, different objects in creation. You People say, I don't believe it if I can't see it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But even if you intellectually kind of analyze things, you analyze that things happening in space and things are happening in time. You know, today we met, tomorrow we will do this. We are in a room, we are in a place, and this is what's happening around the world during that particular piece of time. Time, therefore, has been seen as absolute in a sense, and space is kind of absolute. Absolute means it's fixed and it proceeds in a certain way. And space and its dimensions are also fixed. Scientists have discovered that it's not true. Whether you understand it or it's easy to understand it or it's complicated to understand it, one has to come to the reality that time and space are relative. It's just like that. Physicists and quantum physicists seem to understand it most of the people seem to feel it's bizarre. <laughs> but whether you do or not, this is the reality. And when you say time and space is relative, what does that mean to, the, to an average person? Explain what that means. <laughs> it means that if you were actually to move at a certain speed, now your feet take you at a certain speed. You're so, driving 60 miles an hour. Yeah, suppose now you can drive 600,000 miles an hour. <laughs> Just, we can't, we don't want to, yeah. <laughs> we want to stay you within the limits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cosmic ticket. Then actually the space that you're living in is going to be different, which means the space will be contracting or expanding, literally. Huh. Huh. Literally. And the time that you call now is one minute and now is two minutes and I went through these two minutes, just because you're going faster is going to be very different from somebody going at a smaller speed then these are your perception of the time and the space reality. where things happen. That's your perception of reality. The person who's traveling at that very high speed, these will not necessarily be occurring in the same time frame. And things that for you are the past will be for them the future or otherwise in different ways. So that is a very complex aspect of reality to understand. And that's why it's not 
yeah. open to the senses or even the simple intellect. And why is that relevant to creating peace? It's relevant because it tells us that what we perceive as real... I just have what, to say, I'm really enjoying this. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what we perceive as real and what we perceive as uh, acceptable and what we perceive as possible is not necessarily the whole reality about our lives. They are tending to interpret things based on a perception. And this is what personally took me to the study of the human brain and uh, the study of the nervous system. Because we perceive things based on what glasses we are wearing. Of course, not only the physical glasses, but if you wear yellow glasses, you're going to see yellow. So the same white, beautiful, pure rose seen by two people, one will look at see yellow, one will look at it and see red. And if the question is about what is the color of the rose, they might fight and who knows, you know, get into a battle because the rose is yellow or because the rose is red, whereas it's a beautiful white. It's not rose, right. <laughs> it's not yellow, it's not red. So the glasses that we wear make us see things different and makes us focus on certain aspects of things that are different. And therefore, it is not in changing the thing itself that you're going to find <laughs> commonality and unity. It's in coming back to the self and removing the prejudices and the fears that makes us see things different. William Blake, the great poet, said, if you could cleanse the windows of perception, you would see infinity. Exactly. This tells you that one has to question very profoundly our perception, even physical, even I'm talking about the level of the senses, let alone your interpretation of things, your passion for things, you're you know, so sure about things, when you have to pause and ask yourself, do I have a clean window of perception? Yeah, I won't believe it unless I see it. But seeing is different from yes, actually... Yes, seeing is believing, but yeah, I see. But seeing is different from perceiving. Uh -huh. You know, the eyes can have a certain input come to them from the object, but the interpretation in the uh -huh. brain is a different story sometimes. That is even on the level of the senses, let alone the feeling the intelligence, the question, the interpretation on the feeling level of things. Well, I know that Dr. John Hagelin just came out with a, published an ad in the New York Times about a solution for peace that in brief, if you have a certain number of people meditating together, thousands or hundreds, uh, and doing advanced meditation techniques, that that is going to have a collective effect on society. And you try and, I, I remember I was on a, in an experiment, we were doing a demonstration project at, with meditation in Washington, D.C. in 1993, and Dr. Hagelin, who's a great physicist, had made a prediction to the press that crime would drop 20% within two months in, during the summer in Washington, D.C. when we had these people meditating. And that evening, I was talking to the woman, an older woman who was at the reception desk at my hotel, and she had seen the news report. And she said, I just don't understand how people meditating here could reduce crime or, you know, over there. She said, it's actually going to be easier for you to reduce crime than it will be for you to convince people you reduce crime. It was very interesting, yeah, her yeah, comment. Yeah. So talk to me about, if you're ready to, shift gears to, so we have this perception that I can't influence you. People think, oh, 
yes, if you're meditating, then you're going to smile on the bus and you're, you know, and the bus driver, and then it spreads on that level, and you know, you're happy and you make a happy day. But that's not what you're talking that's about. That's not that at all. So at all. you might be frowning on the bus, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and maybe the best thing to do for the bus. So you, the, know, you never know. So yes, it's not yeah. a, it's not an outer expression that is necessary. Sometimes smiling on the bus is good. Sometimes frowning on the bus is good. Yeah, or you smile on the bus, you might irritate somebody. Yeah, exactly. So how do you have your outer behavior be such <clears throat> that uh, it is in accordance with the laws of nature is one thing for your own personal life. But the effect on society is not on that level at all. So how does that work? That is why I brought earlier the point of the brain and the neurons and society as being made out of individuals who are like individual neurons and a collective consciousness which creates a collective feeling of the group. So the effect is on two levels. One, we can say simply by creating more peace and happiness and harmony and balance inside the individual, then the society is a collection of individuals and therefore the society is going to be better. That is easier to understand even on that level. The question is how does it create an effect at a distance? Because what we are proposing in the solution is that you create a group of people who practice these advanced techniques together that are sitting in one place completely different and far away from the hustle and bustle of New York Even and thousands of miles and away. Thousands of miles away. And then you transform society. This is why I brought the examples earlier of the relativity of time and space, but that's only one aspect, and also the entanglement value. The entanglement value is that ultimately we are all interconnected. What you do here has an effect and a ripple effect everywhere. It can be smaller as you go away from one place to the other, and it also can be smaller on which level you are acting. So if you're acting on the surface level, which we said the surface of life, and that is the outer sensory perception physical. of objects, physical right. things, you have a limited power. So if we talk about it in terms of power, even using power, you took the example of the Defense Department and the State Department. For the Defense Department, they want maximum power. And what's the maximum power they can have? Just theoretically, is the power that makes them able not to go to war. Once they go to war, their power has failed practically because they have to use uh, right. war and to have to fight. If they are really powerful... Intimid almost intimidating. Almost intimidating, you can yeah. use that term. Yeah. But unbounded power means nobody will attack and yeah. nobody dares to attack and you don't have to demonstrate even that power. Unfortunately, to create a deterrent effect, you sometimes have to go out and say, look, you do this to me, I'm going to show you the results of that. You do this to me, I'm going to ban you from coming my country. So these might be deterrent uh, techniques, you know, on a surface level, they do their effect on the surface level. But the side effects of these in terms of loss of energy and power and creativity and human life and the reactions of this and the consequences of this, because every action has a reaction. You cannot be sure to safeguard, you know, from killing innocent people or destroying the environment or creating ripples of effects all over the world that you cannot control on that level. So surface action is one level of power. 
then you have deeper action. And if you go from, even let's say you take a chart and you draw on it a human being and you say the human being is made out of organs and, and like these tissues, molecules, atoms, elementary particles, and then you go down to the field level and the fields have been unified into four fields and then to the grand unification theory which puts most of the fields together and today scientists talk about a fully unified field which puts even gravity with all the others, with the scientists can tell you about it, the physicists about M-theory and other string theory, etc. But basically, even from a physics perspective, we go from a grosser level, surface level, where you can, you know, hit somebody or, you know, mechanically disrupt them, to a more deeper level, the power, let's say, of biology, biological warfare. It's more powerful, that's why they prevent it. It's very dangerous, spreads very fast, and can be, you know, killers of all kinds of innocent people. Then you go to the chemical level. Chemical level is even more penetrating because chemistry is more subtle and it spreads faster uh, in the air or whatever, chemical warfare, and that is even more power. Go, what is making the chemistry is the molecules, the atoms. You go to the molecular power. If you were to really, you know, do something that can change the genetics, you can create a huge destruction of humanity, much more than chemistry can do. Now go from the molecular to the atomic power. and the atomic power, you explode the atoms. And there, if you unleash the atomic power, our survival is gone. So you're using all of these levels of power. And if you use them in a limited fashion, in an incomplete fashion, you can create huge damage. You can say, okay, I throw now an atomic bomb and it's done with. Is this a solution? Obviously, nobody wants to hear about the solution because it's not the solution. And because you're going to estrangement and upset the whole humanity about how we deal with things. And it's going to have ripples for centuries and centuries in many, many ways. So that limited power can be effective apparently, but is hugely destructive and has huge consequences on life on Earth over long periods of time. So what do you do? You can go deeper. Now you start at the level of intelligent power. Intelligent power, which means the power of intelligence. Be it intelligence, which means to know how to do things, correct people's thinking, help them to interpret things in a different way and talk to them and tell them and make them come to their senses. That is more profound actually ultimately power. If you can resolve your problems by discussing, that is better. But discussions have also been limited and never led ultimately to a solution because... Negotiation, peace negotiations. Peace negotiations don't lead because ultimately the instincts come out and the feeling from the old brain, I can find them and I can push them it brings us back to the animal level of life where things are resolved in the jungle by fighting. And that brings humanity also back to that old style of animalistic kind of behavior, which will never also produce a solution. And that is why these negotiations ultimately don't work because the instincts and the fight or flight and the sense of pride and all of this come and play a bigger role. It's very important and be careful also what words we say, what expressions we say, how it is done. But yet again, you go back to the same problem. What is my freedom to express my opinion? Why should be offended? You express your opinion, we discuss it. 
but freedom has a limitation in where it should start, where it should stop before it becomes an aggression and before it creates huge problems. Anyway, as we're going deeper into the understanding, we come to intelligence. More basic than intelligence is being. Because being, which is the unified field that we are talking about, is the source of all that is on the surface. And from these deep levels, we have deep levels of relationship and entanglement, if you like, interconnections. So the solution that will bring the whole collective awareness of society to a level where you can say society as a whole, quotation mark, relaxes, take it easy, not in the sense of lethargy, right. but in terms of going back to yourself <coughs> and use your higher values of brain activity, which has more potential of intelligence and decision-making than your instinctive, deep-rooted, animalistic, jungle-like kind of responses. If people meditating in Iowa or Washington, D.C., uh, according to the research, reduce crime in the whole country or something, does that mean that you could study the brain activity of would there be a, there has to be a change in the brain functioning of all the people who aren't meditating. It'd have to be because your behavior is based on, correct? Yeah, yeah, of course you could do that. There has been some attempts of research like this where they try to check the electroencephalograms of people while there are others producing this effect. But to go back to this effect is that in the same way as we are saying one neuron in the brain starts acting in proper coordination and harmony with the other neurons makes the individual more settled and uses their full potential. If we take the example of the individual as being one neuron in the collectiveness, then there is a process of entrainment where things come together when a few elements come in harmony together. This is a lot seen in laser, for example. Laser light is the same frequency of light as the light we have around us. It's not like laser light is of a frequency that can really be amazingly different. It is light and it's the same light that we have around us. The only difference between laser and the usual light is that when a small percentage of photons or particles start vibrating in coherence with each other, they create an entrainment effect which makes the whole beam of light focused and is able to become a laser. And the laser can open, you know, holes in mountains right. and can, you know, is so far and so penetrating. Can so it's just things. light, it's just normal light, ordinary light. It's ordinary light, it's just the frequency is in coherence together. And that together, becomes an analogy to... That's an analogy to the fact that when you put some people together and they go deep into themselves to these deep levels where they transcend or go to the unified field within themselves, which means individuals that bring their awareness to a very deep settled level, they create an effect which is like an entrainment where the others join mm -hmm. even unknowingly. Why does it happen? Because there is that deep entanglement, that deep connections. Why does it happen in the brain? It's enough that a few cells start functioning in a certain way and the whole brain comes together. Now, if this oscillation is happening with a few neurons 
that come an actual harmony that is nourishing to the brain and positive to the brain, all of the brain becomes more open, the reserves of the brain open, and that's what we see in the research on transcendental meditation. You have more coherence between the front and the back, the right and the left, but it's a positive kind of coherence. Why? Because you can see after these people have these experiences, their creativity is more, their health is better, their intelligence is more, their behavior is more conducive to positive things, and therefore this nourishing power of the harmony of activity within the brain allows all of these positive effects to happen. The same in society. Again, that's why I came back to what is the perception in classical terms is that things are fixed and rigid in time and space and individuals are separate from each other. And I'm saying this is as foolish hmm. as saying that the earth is flat and it is the center of the universe and all planets and stars rotate around the earth in a uniform way. So that is as foolish as saying that individuals are separate, they are fixed in time and space, and they move as independent entities. The more deeply you look into the modern understanding of quantum mechanics, the more you find the interrelation of things, the relativity of time and space. And therefore, whereas on the surface level it appears, oh, it's ridiculous, what are you talking about? Look at the sun, it's moving in the sky. It's the same thing as telling me it's ridiculous that's a group of people because they are coming together to a high level of balance and harmony, they are going to entrain society, which is separate, which is far, which is different. This idea of separate and far is different is a limitation of our perception through the senses. The reality is not like that. The reality is that every particle is a wave function that has the ability to be everywhere and anywhere and probabilities of being one place or the other that are different. That's what creates the wave function. So today we have discoveries of modern science that can substantiate and substantiate very strongly the fact that it is possible to have action at a distance. What looks like action as a distance is actually a local action because everything is somehow local on that level of the unified field. So it's a different reality of understanding and we can wait until everybody explains it and everybody comes to it and all of that and live through wars and struggle and keep using our old-fashioned solutions and keep failing and keep saying well, that's the nature of things, etc. until age will come or time will come where people will use this technology and laugh at us in this generation and tell us you are as much of a fool as those who have you know, put Galileo in, in house arrest or prison or whatever. So that is really one level of understanding that has to be seen from how nature is actually built. If you try to explain it on the basis of an outer classical sensory perception, there will always be these people who tell you, how can you say that if you do this here, it will have an effect there? Well, how can you say that 100, 200 years ago, suppose I tell you, look, there is somebody sitting uh, 5,000 miles away in America, and I'm sitting here in Europe, and I'm going to be able to talk to them instantly. And they're going to talk to me and describe to me, even show me where they are and what they are living 
and I can live that reality. You get a big laughter and you will feel that you're absolutely ridiculous. But today we do it. All you have to do is FaceTime or whatever uh, system you use, WhatsApp or whatever, Viber, yeah, yeah. and take your phone and say, look at this. And people in China, they say, oh yeah, hi, how are you? There is a saying in the Veda that says, fear is born out of duality. And it's very simple. When you have two things, the chance of one taking the over is always there. Or the chance of the other diminishing this one or killing this one or removing some benefits from this one to this one is always there. When there, there are two values, the two values can clash. It might even be the value of your intellect versus your heart, your feeling versus your deep emotions versus your reason, your rationale, your uh, duty, your responsibility, your teaching. This duality always creates a clash. And people, when they identify themselves with some specific narrow value, there will always be a sense of duality. There will always be the other. And whenever there is the other, it's the seed of fear and the seed of potential conflict. How do we eliminate the other? We want to eliminate the other. Sounds a horrible thing. But we don't eliminate the other on the surface. We just realize that we are the other, that we are everything. Now that sounds like a very lofty, idealistic kind of idea. And intellectually, it can never work to just say you are the other, everyone is the unified field. Because you wake up in the morning, you look at the mirror, you ask yourself who you are, what is your job, and this is what you think you are. But if you look deeply and scientifically, who you really are, you are these organs, tissues, cells, <laughs> then molecules, your molecules are atoms, your atoms are elementary particles, and you get to the fields, and you find your unified field manifesting itself in all of these different values. But it's the unified field. Not you alone are the unified field. Everything is that, the whole matter, creation, all people, other people, they are that reality. Now, this is something theoretically can be discussed and argued about and all of that, even though science is pointing us to us that, that reality of what life is about and how it came from that one singularity. The thing is, there is a technology that allows you to be aware of yourself as the unified field. That is transcendental meditation. That is what it means to go beyond. You allow the mind to settle, settle, settle. You have thoughts, and then there is a technique. Of course, you have to learn in four days. It's very easy. Even children, they do it. They really love it. And because they are innocent, they actually do it quicker and much simpler uh, than even the complicated adults. <laughs> so you get there, and you go beyond even the finest sense of individuality. You transcend. And that transcendental state, you realize, this is myself. So even though intellectually you might come out and of course remember that you have to do your job, that you're a doctor, that you're, uh, you know, you, you live this place and all of that, you have your individual reality, but your inner feeling, stronger than your intellect even, knows that you are that unbounded feeling of pure being. I remember something very beautiful, which was in one of your uh, events that you had organized. And this, you will know better, but I, I really was touched by this person who was a criminal in, in, in the prison and was very harsh, and his life was horrible and all of that. 
And when he learned transcendental meditation, he gave this talk. He said, I could not believe that there was within me such level of peace mm -hmm. and such level of depth, that this is also me. And he said this transformed all his life. So it's really the awareness, who we are, who we are. Am I this? Am I that? Am I this? That is the field of duality. And the field of duality is always a field of potential fear, of potential conflict. When you get to know yourself to be that infinity, that pure being, you come out stronger than your intellect. You are peaceful, you are compassionate, you are tolerant. And that is really the field, if you want to compare it to the field of force and use of force, that is the field of true love. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Yes. Because sometimes people say, you know, peaceniks. People, oh, you just have to love your neighbor, you just have to love, and love is the solution. And, and you say that to a practical person, and they just roll their eyes, and they say, that's, that's just crazy. I mean, you, yeah, right, you're going to love, and then you're going to be rolled over, and meanwhile, you are carrying flowers. So, you know, the... the <laughs> and they're absolutely right. So talk about what you mean by love and the power of love. It's not that... Let's start by saying one thing very important. No drop of love, no piece of love, no moment of love, no expression of love is ever wasted, no matter what it is. Every drop of love brings a level of unity, a level of growth, a level of cohesion. But true love that would create strength and infinite level of society is not on the level of some emotional surface expression of convincing oneself that one has to love. And sometimes love can have a sense of flight response. <laughs> we have talked about the old brain having fight response. Sometimes love can be like flight response. You run away from the situation and you think everything is going to be great. You don't go into the jungle on a surface level of emotion and hope that the hungry tiger, when he'll meet you, is going to say, oh, he's a nice guy. <laughs> you know, even though we have stories, of course, of great saints who right. kind of calmed the tigers. St. Francis. Yeah. Yeah, St. Yeah. Francis. Why? That is at the level of consciousness. That is all at the level of consciousness. So how can we define love and true love? Love, basically, if you want to look at it as a force of nature, as an entity in reality, is a force that is unifying. Because things that are different, suddenly they come together and they're unified under this force of feeling, of wanting to surmount differences and create unity. So we said duality creates fear. Love brings unity, which means eliminates duality. That is why love is stronger than fear love can overcome the differences. Love is a unifying force and to have a unifying true power of love, ultimately the solution is simple. You go to that one unified state in which all differences merge and become one and which is itself the source of all differences and which maintains all of these differences and their evolution and their progress in order as long as they are in tune with that state of pure consciousness, pure being, pure existence, the self of everything and everyone. So by coming back to the self and awakening that within oneself, one is living on that level of pure being and one can have the effect of that on the environment. A small group of people, the square root of 1% of any population, can create that effect. 
it has been proven, it has been tried, and what it does is create that influence of harmony in society so that conflicts diminish and problems diminish and crime diminishes and that is true expression of unifying force of love. Otherwise, doing love on the surface emotional level can be a dangerous thing. You know, you get into in front of a psychopath and a psychopath doesn't have the same conscience as you do. When you see somebody suffering or somebody having pain or something, you feel compassion, you feel empathy. But the brain of a psychopath is wired in such a way that doesn't feel these things. It acts based on urge and desire and specific values, even though very intelligent and can be very nice to you on the surface, but when it comes to empathy, to compassion, to tolerance, to acceptance, it just doesn't cross his or her mind. That is a problem. There is a problem in the wiring of the nervous system. Now this person, love or no love, doesn't feel it. So this is one reality, but it doesn't contradict the fact that love is a very powerful unifying force. And it has to be from that level of pure being where love is complete and is powerful and is truly able to create transformation in the environment. Love on the surface is a very surface thing. It's a very surface thing. When you talk about this, it reminded me of a talk that Maharshi gave where a person who is enlightened knows everything in terms of himself or herself, but doesn't eat rocks. You yeah, know, exactly. It, it's myself, but there's a, you have discrimination, so this is appropriate, so that's a psychopath, that person stays there. That Now, I have a question for you, and that is, when you're saying that this is a solution, the square root of 1%, you're not advocating that we dispense with armies, police, uh, negotiate, you know, peace negotiators, the United Nations, please no, comment. No, of course not, of course not. You see, we have to be logical and practical. And <clears throat> by the time you create this effect and have this effect and all of that, it will take time, uh, not much time actually, that is the good part of it. It can be done within a few weeks and you create those groups and you'll start seeing transformation. But transformations will take place gradually and you will still need, you know, as a safety factor, your police and your army and all of that. But the police and the army will be most powerful, will be most successful, and will achieve most powerfully their purpose when they don't have to use the force for which they have been created. The army that does not have to fight is the army that wins the war before even the war have a chance to happen. And that's why what we want is destroy the enmity in the enemy. Destroy the enmity in the enemy. Destroy the enemy, but before he is born. So don't give a chance even to the enemy to be born. How do you do that? By going back to that area in life that is so powerful that it doesn't allow enmity to penetrate. You know, there is an effect in magnetism and magnetic fields that is called the Meissner effect. When you have, you know, magnets that are not organized, they can be penetrated by outer uh, fields or, or uh, aspects of physics, etc. When they are acting in coherence, then a magnetic field, you know, they cannot penetrate them. It's called the Meissner effect. And that's just a simple analogy on how when there is an internal coherence within a group, then it becomes more and more invincible. So we can bring invincibility even to our nation, awaiting for people to, you know, 
to get their scripture interpreted mm-hmm. or adjusted or all of that. So take responsibility for yourself. Take your responsibility for your coherence in your country. Bring that power of love to create within your nation great harmony and great coherence. And the outer powers cannot penetrate it. They just cannot penetrate it. But if you create such a strong level of coherence, then you can also allow the others to wake up and come out and interpret things on a much more profound level. This is all the knowledge from the Vedic tradition, from Maharshi. This is a technology that is thousands of years old, but that Maharshi has brought to light in in this scientific age, in a scientific framework. And he has explained all these points that all the things that I'm talking about come from his knowledge and guidance and experience and teaching. And he learned from his teacher. Yeah, exactly. So all of this is something that is universal in many ways. And yet we don't want to put it out as a truth, a belief system or as a, you know, a truth that supersedes other truths and all of that. All we're saying is clean up your mind from your stresses, rest very well, and then you will think better, you will feel better. Go back to yourself. That is really an awakening that is being, you know, promoted like an exercise, but an exercise on the level of the mind and ultimately on the deep level of being, the deep level of consciousness. I have had the great honor in my life of sitting across from heads of state and senators and congressmen and great CEOs and great thought leaders. Never have I had this honor. I really (laughs) deeply appreciate this opportunity to spend this time Thank you you. for taking the time. It's a responsibility of all of us, and you are also leading in many ways in this path. I congratulate you for your achievements and look forward to make them universal and raise life on earth to a heavenly life. And more conversations like this. Looking forward. Thank you for tuning into Dr. Tony Nader, the podcast. And if you're interested in learning more from Dr. Nader, please follow him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.